I would be remiss if I did not begin tonight by expressing my appreciation, first of all, for the invitation to come back to Pippin. I'm thankful for the elders and for the providence of God that we have the opportunity to be together and to spend a little while involved in and concentrating on spiritual matters. And I know that uh, the devil will be among us trying to distract us, me and you alike. And uh, I know that sometimes it can be a struggle to put away, as we often pray, the thoughts and cares of this world and to focus on spiritual matters as was prayed tonight or mentioned tonight. But I trust that we'll all make the effort to do that. And I appreciate the opportunity to come back and be with you. Appreciate the elders here, as was mentioned in the prayer as well. And I appreciate all the members that are here tonight. I know that uh, perhaps you're expected to be here, and uh, it's my conviction you would be wrong were you not. But I appreciate the fact that you're here, because you still could have chosen to go somewhere else and be somewhere else, if nothing, nowhere else than at home. I appreciate you for being here tonight. And I appreciate all the visitors that are here. You uh, came because you wanted to, as did the members. But you weren't under the sense of obligation necessarily to be here. And we appreciate your presence tonight, giving up a portion of your time. And I hope that all of us will be glad when we're through that we did so. Uh, you may not particularly enjoy the lesson. Or you may be some things that you've heard before. But I hope that regardless of whatever factors may play into uh, criticism, that we'll still be glad that we as people of God assemble together to worship God. We need to, to realize the privilege that it is to worship God. And I appreciate you being here tonight. Hope you'll take your Bibles and study along with us tonight. In Mark chapter 9, beginning in about verse 2, we read, that after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves and was transfigured before them. And there appeared unto them with him Elias and Moses and they talked with Jesus. And then we read that Peter answered and said unto Jesus, Master it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, or Elijah, your Bible might say. Now, just a few verses later, we read that as they came down off of the mountain, that Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what had happened there. Think about that for a moment. Peter had said, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, tents, dwelling places. The point that we want to think about tonight is, and the title of the lesson, if we were going to give it one, would be a marketplace religion. You see, the, the, one of the lessons that we draw from this event is not only the lessons that we might glean from the transfiguration of Jesus and the disciples seeing his glory and God speaking from the cloud that overshadowed them and saying, this is my son, hear him. But it is the reality that they could not stay on that mountain. 
there were some things that Jesus and the disciples needed to do in the practice of their religion and in the fulfilling of his purpose for coming into this world that necessitated that they go off of that mountain. It's somewhat, I would say, akin to our being here tonight. We enjoy, or at least I do, and I'm sure you do or you wouldn't be here, we enjoy coming together. We enjoy as Christians being with one another and especially when we're with one another to worship God. And so gospel meetings and vacation Bible schools and lectureships and things like that are a joy to us. Not only because of the benefit we derive spiritually from worshiping, singing, and praying, and the study of the Bible, but from being with one another. But most of our life is lived out in the world. All of life is not worship. And all of the Christian life is not consumed and fulfilled in our assemblies. I'm sure that in Matthew 26 and about verse 30 when we read that after the supper they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives, those disciples would have liked to have stayed in that upper room. And perhaps later reflecting back, they would have liked to have even stayed in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying. But all of life is not fulfilled and consumed with assemblies. As important and enjoyable as they are to us and for us, life is lived, Christian life is lived out among people. And so we want to talk about tonight what we might call a marketplace religion. Can Christianity be lived in the world and make a difference? Sure it can. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said in verse 13, You're the salt of the earth. And then he says just a little later, verse 14, You're the light of the world. And then in verse 16, Let your light so, adverb of manner, Let light so shine before men that they may see your good works. We cannot go into the confines of a building or build a wall around about us and live in a separate community. That's not the way the Lord intended for us to live. To have an influence, we have to be out in the world. But we have to take our religion with us in order for that to be accomplished. So, turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 1. And let's look at four boys who had a marketplace religion. Their religion was not confined to the temple and to religious settings, but their religion was one that they, they took with them where they went and practiced where they went. And they made a difference, as we're going to suggest in the conclusion tonight. You'll recall that those four boys that we're talking about were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Azariah. Mishael and Azariah. And we know their Babylonian names were Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we know that they were carried away in that first wave of captives that was taken out of Judah, the southern kingdom, down into Babylon. But we also know about those men because of what they did in Babylon. We don't know a great deal about their life and their conduct in Judah before they left. We could make some assumptions about them. But what we read about these young men, and they were relatively young, 
perhaps early teens or even preteens when they went down into Babylon. But what we know about them, we know about them after they got into Babylon. Look with me first of all at the challenges that they faced. And you'll note that we are confronted with the challenge they faced in their environment. Verses 3 and 4 of Daniel 1 tell us that Nebuchadnezzar the king had given command to Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he was to take certain of the children, of the king's children, of the princes, children in whom there was no blemish. And he was to bring them. Now where was he to bring them? He was to bring them down to Babylon. And there in Babylon they would be made eunuchs and they would be put into the school of the Babylonians and trained to serve the king as wise men as soothsayers, as it were, magicians. They were to be trained in those arts in Babylon. And four of those boys that were taken are the four that we're talking about tonight. But note that they faced the challenge in their environment. Now admittedly, things were not ideal in Judah. There was idolatry in Judah. There was ungodliness and sinfulness in Judah. But they were taken away from the external influences at least in the temple and in other good and godly people among Judah that had not gone off into those sins and that apostasy and they were taken away from them and carried down into Babylon where there was rampant idolatry and ungodliness and immorality. There was the challenge to their environment. They were taken out of their familiar surroundings and taken out of the place where they were accustomed to worship and the temple where they could have access to God. In fact, later on, after the Babylonian kingdom falls and uh, Darius, remember, signs the decree that says that they could not pray to anyone except the gods of the Medes. Daniel goes into his house and prays out of his window toward Jerusalem as was his custom. Why was he doing that? Because Jerusalem is where the temple was. And in that temple is where God came down into the most holy place and met with the high priest and communed with the people. That represented the place where God met with His people. Daniel respected that. But now he's taken away from that. Well, that's not a lot different from life in any generation and certainly not in ours, is it? I mean, we're here tonight, and admittedly, isn't it easier here in this assembly, in this environment, to think about spiritual things? I know there there are challenges, but generally speaking, it's easier. The television is not on, the radio is not on, the internet's not, not right there at our hands and at our disposal, video games are not there, and we're certainly not being confronted by all kinds of ungodly and immoral activity that walk out those doors. And you go to your job tomorrow, or maybe later tonight. You go to school tomorrow. You go to other places, in the marketplace, and the malls, and other gathering places of people. And what do you find? You find a challenge to godly people in their environment to live as we ought to live. We'll find people immodestly clad, practically naked. We don't have to listen very long till we'll hear all kinds of filthy language and speech. And there's certainly the challenge to live as we ought to live. How many young people tomorrow 
that are children of God and trying to live the Christian life will be encouraged to lie or cheat on a test. Will be encouraged to become involved in promiscuity. Experiment with drugs, alcohol, tobacco. It's out there. And it's not a lot different than it was about a hundred years ago when me and Ronnie were in school. <laughs> you know, uh, my children, when they went to Smith County High School, my two youngest children, they could have told you where to find those folks who could supply them with those kinds of things or get them involved in those things. They knew where they were at, just like I did when I was in high school. And these young people that are here tonight, they know where they're at. They, they would know where to go if they wanted to get involved in that. But it's right there. How many at the job tomorrow will be, in, be confronted with vulgarity and encouraged to lie? Sometimes, even at home, phone rings, a child answer. Mama, it's for you. Tell them I'm not home. Even in our, and you see, there's the challenge in our environment. These boys face that. But not only that, they face the challenge to their religion. Not that that environment wasn't challenging that in itself. But in a specific way, you will note that in verse 5, the king had made provisions that those young men, those children who were brought down, were to be fed with a portion of the king's meat and the king's wine. And we appreciate Daniel so much because he had purposed in his heart, verse 8, that he would not partake of the portion of the king's meat and the king's wine. You see, that was a challenge to their religion. To their, to their Bible, if you will. Leviticus 11 forbid them to eat certain kinds of meat. There were certain foods that were unclean to the Jews. Now the Babylonians could eat them. And it wouldn't be a sin for them to do so. Any other Gentile nation or people could eat those unclean meats. And it wouldn't be a sin to do so. One of the reasons we know that is because there were certain foods that were unclean. For instance, an animal that died of itself was unclean to an Israelite, but he could take it and sell it to a stranger by the instruction of God. And the stranger could eat it. Folks, God would not have told Israel to do something that would provoke or encourage someone else to sin if they couldn't eat it. So they could have eaten it. The Babylonians could eat any kind of meat they wanted to. There was no restriction on their diet, but there was on the Israelites. And Daniel knew that. Leviticus 11. Not only that, it is possible, though not definite, so we wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but it is at least possible that to eat those meats might have involved in their somehow paying tribute to the Babylonian gods. It might be honored by those foods or meats or that wine. There's the challenge to their religion. Now think about it. They're a long way from home. But the law that God gave to Israel didn't change when they went from Judah to Babylon. It didn't change. It's still the law for Israel. There's the challenge to their religion. The gospel that governs our lives doesn't just govern our lives in the assembly. Yes, there are some specific things that are addressed that we are to do when we are assembled together and are not to do. But this gospel doesn't just govern my life 
tonight, and when I go out of here, I'm free to do anything I want to do. This gospel governs my life and your life everywhere we go. And I don't know who coined the phrase, but I think that it's accurate and I like it. And it says that if you are not a Christian everywhere you go, you're not a Christian anywhere you go. And so tomorrow when you go to work, if you or I use profanity in the workplace, we are sinning just as much if we were using it right here in this assembly. Most of the preachers and maybe others as well, and I'm sure elders that might be here, those at Pippin and otherwise, you know, sometimes people will say when they're in the church building, somebody will, will maybe in jest say something not true and that's not true and somebody recognizes it and says, are you going to lie right here in the church house? Or what difference does it make whether you're in the church house or not when you tell a lie? I enjoy playing golf periodically and a few times I've gone by myself and, and met up with somebody and began to play with them. And they'll ask me, what do you do? You know, I mean, I'm out there maybe in the middle of the week. And they're, they're, they're out there too. But maybe they're a fireman on 24 and all 48. And they're taking advantage of one of those 48 hours they're off. And they're playing a little golf. But they don't, I'm, what do you do? I'm a preacher. Oh, I hope I hadn't said anything to hurt your feelings that I shouldn't say to a preacher. Well, I tell them. Man, if you can't say it to a preacher, you can't say it to anybody. The Lord's listening no matter who you're talking to. But see, that's the challenge to our religion. Everywhere we go, we are to exemplify Christian conduct and attitudes and dispositions. Folks, it, would, it is not any more sinful for you to come in here in a two-piece bathing suit, ladies, than it is for you to go down here at the swimming pool. And if you can't wear it here, you can't wear it there. And then it's not any more wrong for you to wear it here, a one-piece, immodest swimming suit, here than it would be for you to wear it down to the swimming pool. If it's not right here, it's not right down there. Because your religion is to govern you everywhere you go. If you couldn't come in here with a can of beer and sit there in the pew and drink it during this service, you can't do it at home or anywhere else for that matter. Because the same gospel that governs your conduct in that respect, in, that, in regard to that particular matter, governs you here, governs you wherever you go. And yet all of us know that there are folks who claim to be Christians who when they're at home, in their neighborhood, behave one way and get off on vacation and forget completely who they are. And it's as though they don't have enough sense to know the Lord is watching. The challenge to their religion. But notice also, and I've got to move along here, the challenge to their identity. They change their names. Why? Because each one of those boys' names had something to do with his relationship with God. For example, Daniel's name meant God's judge. Hananiah's name meant blessed or favored of God. And on you could go, Mishael and Azariah. So they changed their name, and in changing their name to Belteshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they removed the identity of God out of their names. 
There's the challenge to their identity. But you face the same thing. You ever had anybody ask you, are you a Christian? Yeah. What kind? Well, how many kinds are there? I don't read of but one kind in my Bible. Just one kind. Sometimes folks say, are you a born again Christian? What other kind are there? If you're born again, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you had to have been born again. Paul says in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, that ye are all the children of God by faith. Where? In Christ. By faith in Christ. The phrase in Christ there is not talking about the object of their faith, but the location. In, just like we're in this building. You're the children of God. By faith in Christ. And then the very next verse is one of only two verses in all of your Bible that tell you how a person gets into Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, they put on Christ. You're the children of God, Paul, uh, Paul said. First John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And such we are, he says. Therefore the world knoweth us not. Don't forget, when you go to work tomorrow, tonight, when you go to school tomorrow, young people, if you are a child of God, don't forget that you are a child of God. And what you do reflects on your heavenly Father. That was something my daddy drilled into me about he and my mother when I went to school. He said, whatever you do at school is a reflection on your mother and me. And if there's any school teachers here in the audience, you know what I'm talking about. You've had those little holy terrors. A few, and you thought to yourself, boy, I know what their mom and daddy doesn't do. They don't make them behave. That may or may not be right, but you thought that. Some of them at least. That's what my daddy was saying. Your behavior is going to be a reflection on your mother and me. That's also true spiritually, folks. And that's why we say that when a, when a child of God sins in a public way, they bring reproach upon God. Remember what David said when Nathan pointed that prophetic finger at him after telling him about the man with the one little ewe lamb that was like his child, the neighbor that had the, the large flock, and when he had a guest come, he took the man's one little lamb and killed it and served his guest. David said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. And David said, I have sinned. And in Psalm 51, he said, I have sinned against God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Don't forget who we are. That was their challenge. Remove their identity as Israelites and make them Babylonians. Make them forget their God and their relationship to their God. And make them feel like all the other gods are just as good. There were some challenges that those boys faced in their marketplace religion that are very much akin to what you and I face today. Now quickly, the second point. Notice the character that they possessed. You're going to see in these boys some convictions. Did you know that you are what you believe? You're what you believe. We all are. And these boys had some convictions. In fact, we learn in the third chapter 
that in the case of Hanai, Mishael, and Azariah, they were willing to die for their convictions. When Nebuchadnezzar built that great image and commanded everybody to worship it, when the musical instrument sounded, they didn't bow down. That information was brought to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I'm going to give you one more opportunity. And their response was, Oh, king, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. But our God can deliver us and will deliver us. But if not, we will not worship the image nor serve the idols that you made. And they were cast into that furnace. I've tried to imagine what must have been going through those young men's minds when they were thrown and in those seconds or milliseconds between the time that they were pushed or forced and their momentum is carrying them in those, those few, few moments before they hit the heat in the furnace. What went through their minds? And what was going through their minds when they were in that furnace and they weren't being harmed? They had some convictions. Look at their heart. Verse 8 says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat or the king's wine. The word purpose carries the idea of a determination, a decision. He'd made up his mind. And he made up his mind before he got down there. Listen, folks, the time to decide what we're going to do in the face of temptation is not when the temptation comes. You know tomorrow, you, you, if you've been in your workplace long enough or the schoolhouse long enough, you know some of the temptations you're going to face tomorrow. And admittedly, there may be some that take us unawares. But we know some of the temptations we're going to face tomorrow. We know the crowds that we encounter and maybe associate with somewhat. And we know the, the vices that they practice. And we know the temptations that are going to be ours. The time to decide what we're going to do in regard to those things is not tomorrow when we're there, but tonight before we get there. Now we may in weakness yield, but make up your mind. I am not going to give in purpose in your heart. And do so with a stubborn resolve, if you will. That's what Daniel did. Look at his heart. That's the kind of heart we need. We live in a society where people are so wishy-washy and tossed to and fro about things and don't seem to have made up their mind about what they want to be and what they want to do. In fact, Jesus said concerning the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. Because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. How many Christians are so-called are lukewarm, indifferent about the life that they're living and the direction in which they're going? purpose in your heart. That's what Daniel did. But notice something else. Notice their humility. We read that Daniel requested that they not defile themselves. In verse 12, he said, I beseech thee. 
Notice the humility. Now, note there was a firm resolve. We're not going to compromise our convictions. But he wasn't ugly about it. He wasn't disrespectful. He wasn't hateful. You don't have to be, and I don't have to be ugly and mean-spirited in standing for the truth and for what's right without compromise. These boys didn't. There was a humility and they didn't vaunt themselves and exalt themselves and look down upon those in Babylon that were serving the king of Babylon. There was a humility about it. Turn over and read sometime. We won't do it for the sake of time tonight, but read Acts 24, 25, and 26. And note in Paul's defenses that he makes before Felix and then Festus and then Agrippa. Note the respectful tones with which Paul speaks to Felix and Festus and Agrippa. In fact, he says, as he is defending himself before Agrippa, and Agrippa accuse him, accuses him that thy much learning hath made thee mad. Paul says, I am not mad, most noble Festus. Look at the respectful way he addressed him. Now, you read back in Acts 15 of the firm settled convictions Paul had because when there were certain that came down from Jerusalem and taught among those Gentile Christians that except you be circumcised after the manner of the law of Moses, you cannot be saved, there was no small disputation that Paul had with those men. He would not allow them to come in and bind as a condition of salvation that which God had not already bound in heaven. And he would not allow that doctrine to advance in his presence. But we learn that we can balance that kind of conviction with cordial, courteous language. We don't have to be ugly. We don't compromise. Why? Because like we learned earlier, the truth is going to be the truth no matter where it's taught. You see, I, I might get mad here at Pippin because something is taught that, that I don't believe. And I might even go somewhere else where it won't be taught. It doesn't change the truth, folks. It doesn't change the truth. The truth is still going to be the truth no matter where I go. All of us who preach have had occasions where folks have gotten upset with us. Sometimes because we've taught things that the Bible teaches and they didn't like it. And they got mad. Maybe they went somewhere else. Maybe where they went, they'll never hear a lesson on that subject in that time. That still doesn't change the truth. It's still going to be the truth. And those of us who preach have the obligation of addressing ourselves to all of the subjects and issues that have to do with men and women's lives and their eternal destiny. And Paul did that, and because he did, he could say, I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. We've got to preach on social issues like social drinking and immodest dress and dancing 
We've got to preach on social issues like marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and homosexuality. We have to preach on those hot topic issues like homosexuality and abortion. We have to address ourselves to matters like instrumental music in worship and the sinfulness of it. The necessity of partaking of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Now we don't, cannot and should not make any of those or other subjects a hobby and preach only on those things. But if we don't touch on those things from time to time, we're not meeting our responsibility to God. And we have to do that. And I don't want somebody to stand before God on the day of judgment and be lost because there was something in their life that I refuse to address in the sermons that I preached because if that happens, their blood's going to be on my hands because I didn't try to help These boys had a great heart. They had convictions, and they were humble in their approach, but they were honest. They didn't try to sneak up on anybody. They told those Babylonians down there what was going on. Let us eat pulse and drink water. They were up front. They were honest. We don't need to sneak up on anybody. We don't need to be ashamed of the truth. The truth is the truth. And in preaching and teaching, we want to be careful about how we approach things, but we have to be honest. Peter said, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the reason of the hope within you, 1 Peter 3.15. Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. And I know that sometimes we say the right thing in the wrong way. But I also know that in dealing with people, sometimes there's no good way to say the right thing. There's no good way a doctor can come in and tell you you've got cancer. Now, some do it better than others. There's not a good way to do it. There's no good way to go in and tell somebody your child has died. We did all we could. There's no good way to say that. There's no good way to say it. There's no hope. There's nothing left to be done. You've got to make some decisions. There's no good way to say that. It may be the truth. But think about this. I, I'm convinced that sometimes there are Christians, there are members of the Lord's church that are hesitant to talk about the Bible because... Number one, they're afraid that they don't know the answer. And we don't know the answer to all questions that could be raised. But number two, they're afraid they'll say the right thing in the wrong way. You know what? You will. At times, you will. Because we're not the Lord, and we don't know the hearts of everybody, and how, in every instance, to always answer in those circumstances. We don't want to do it maliciously. We don't want to do it to try to strike a blow and cut. We want to do it to try to help. But think about this. Jesus was called by Isaiah, the wonderful counselor, Isaiah 9.6. He could always say the right thing and always say it in the right way, but in spite of that, there were still those that hated him and despised him for what he said and how he said it. And they took up stones to stone him, Acts, uh, John 8.59. Do I expect to exceed the ability of the Lord in those matters? Certainly not. Be honest. Be humble, but have a heart that is set on doing what's right.
Now, very quickly, look at the contribution they made. We have the challenges that they faced. We have the character that they possessed. Look at the contributions they made. They set a good example. Daniel purposed in his heart. And the implication is that the other three boys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were in agreement with him and followed along. Daniel says, give us, plural, pulse, and water. One person can at times, by their courageous example, make a difference for good. I know it won't always happen that way. We read about the twelve spies going into the land of Canaan and coming back with the report that it is indeed a land that flows with milk and honey. But ten of them said, we're not able to go, and in spite of the pleas of Joshua and Caleb to the contrary, that we are well able to take the land, they knew God was on their side. The people listened to the report of the ten spies, and they didn't go in. And those twenty and above died in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb and priests. It won't always work that way. But you never know when your example, your courageous convictions in your conduct demonstrated at work, at school, young people, in your recreation, at the ball field, wherever it may be, might help somebody else. In Philippians 1, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. And he says that many of the brethren waxing confident by my bonds are emboldened to preach the gospel. The example of one man. The courage, the conviction, and the courage to express those convictions even though he was in prison encouraged others to preach the gospel there and there. Now some didn't preach sincerely, but the gospel was being preached. There was a good example. There was a godly emphasis. They took the name of God down to Babylon. In fact, in Daniel 2.47, Nebuchadnezzar said, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. They took the knowledge of God into Babylon. Do you take the knowledge of God to your workplace? To the schoolhouse? I'll tell you about a young man. And this example could be repeated in the workplace or the schoolhouse. But a young man who is now in pharmacy school down in Memphis when he was in high school in Smith County, graduated with my daughter. When he was in high school, in those science classes where they were teaching evolution, he studied his book, he studied his notes, and when he took the exams, he knew the questions that they were asking and he knew the answers they were looking for. And he would give them what they wanted and then he would add, but I don't believe this. Or he might say, this is what you're looking for, but this is what the truth is. And then he would say, here's what the Bible says about how things came to be. He took the knowledge of God into that classroom. Folks. And yes, he knew what the teachers were looking for on those tests when they asked those questions. And he let them know that he knew the information that they were disseminating in their lectures and in those books. He had grasped that, but he also let them know, I'm not buying it. I'm not embracing it. I don't believe it's right. I don't believe the facts support it. You and I can do that. When we refuse to lie, to cheat, to cut corners in unrighteousness, we're taking the knowledge of God wherever we go. And they had a glorious ending. 
Verse 21 of Daniel 1 says concerning him that he continued even unto Cyrus. Folks, that's at least 70 years. Because the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian kingdom failed. Cyrus was a Persian king. The Medo-Persian Empire followed the Babylonian. So Daniel continued at least 70 years. And yet as you read through Daniel and read about him, he's consistently practicing his religion. You can take it down to where you live. He took it with him to Babylon. You and I can take it to the workplace, to the schoolhouse, to the ball field, everywhere we go. Christianity will work. It will have some opposition. Jesus said that if you were of the world, the world would love you. But because I've chosen you out of the world and you're not of the world, therefore doth the world hate you. First John 15, about verse 19. He prayed to the Father and he said, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And there will be the inevitable conflict that that will bring. But one person, living their Christianity everywhere they go, can make a difference. Isn't that what our communities need? Isn't that what our country needs? We need men and women who know what the Bible teaches to stand up, practice their religion wherever they are, and it will make a difference. Wouldn't you agree that Babylon was better because Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were down there. Is Putnam County better because we're here tonight? When I go home, will Smith County be a better place because I live there? If we practice our religion, it will be. It will help our communities to be better. Sometimes, in spite of unfaithful brethren, because you see... The implication in Daniel 1 is not everybody that went from Judah down to Babylon was willing to do what they did. But they could make a difference in spite of brethren who would not live their religion. It works. If we will work it, it works and we make a difference. you got to be a Christian be a child of God to become a, and be a Christian and live the Christian life, you have to obey the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 7, 1-9 says that God is going to judge in wrath those who know not God and obey not the gospel. That means believing in Christ, John 8, 24. In faith then, turning from the life you've thus far lived to serve God. That's what those at Thessalonica did. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. That's called repentance. That you confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and be baptized, immersed in order to be saved. You don't do any of that to earn anything. We get what we deserve. We're going to all be lost. That's how we accept and receive the grace of God that is extended to us through His Son. The blood of Jesus washes us from our sins, Revelation 1, 5. But Paul told Ananias, told Saul rather, Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. Your sins will be washed away by the blood of Christ when you, as a penitent believer, having confessed your faith, are baptized. You're put into Christ. Those sins are washed away. If you haven't done that, we hope you will tonight. And then go out into the world and let your light so shine before me. If you're a child of God, 
Let your light shine. It's already shining. The question is how? Does it reflect honorably upon the glory and the character of God? If it does, don't get discouraged and don't quit. And if it doesn't and it hasn't, repent tonight. Beg the Lord's forgiveness before you meet Him in judgment. And have to face Him having crucified the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Let brethren pray with you and pray for you. Thank you for your good attention tonight. If you are subject to the Lord's invitation, won't you please come?